Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today we have a really, really awesome guest. Her name is Lily Rice, and Lily has done a lot in her fashion career. She worked as an employee for many years, she ran her own very successful fashion brand, and now she is a freelancer. So if you're interested in any of these things, there is something to gain out of this interview. Now, we do wind up talking a little bit more extensively about her freelance career, but uh, we get to that after we go through her employee and her experience with her own brand. So if you want the freelance stuff, sit tight because there's a lot of great value in here. Um, Lily talks about you know how she sort of kick-started kick things with her freelancing, you know how she used her knowledge and experience from working as an employee to working as the owner of her own fashion brand to leverage her experience and build her freelance career. She does almost all of her work exclusively remote, which is amazing. And she's gone through all the hurdles and she shares a lot of those with us in terms of, you know, negotiating and how to get new clients and how to uh, make sure you get those remote opportunities and how brands have been very open to working with her on that level. So I'm really, really excited to share this interview with you today. Um, As always, thank you so much for listening. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to tell you about uh, some resources you may not know about. A lot of listeners out there think SFD is just a podcast, and while the podcast is amazing and, and really helpful, and tons of you have left so many great reviews on iTunes, if you haven't yet, we do love getting reviews from you, so take a second to leave us a review. But beyond that, I want to let you know that SFD is a lot more than just this podcast that you hear on Mondays. Um, we do tons of templates, tutorials, and free ebooks on things like landing your dream fashion job, fashion portfolios, freelancing, how to use Illustrator for fashion, tech packs, and so much more. And I know that tons of you can benefit from this content, but you just don't know that it's out there. So it's my fault, and I'm sorry I didn't tell you about this sooner. Uh, So here's what I did. I put together my best free content just for you as a podcast listener to help you get ahead in your fashion career. And I would love to get that to you right now. So take 30 seconds, hit pause on this episode, and go to SoHeidi.com slash email for instant access to my best free stuff. Again, it's so Heidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email, and you can get instant access to all of that. If Instagram is a little bit more your flavor, I do hang out a little bit there and share some of that content as well. Um, I do my best to be in many places. So if you're more in tune to Instagram, definitely give me a follow there. It's, again, at so Heidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I. So check me out. I'd love to connect with you there. If you want to access the show notes for links to anything we talked about today, you can scroll down wherever you're listening. And now let's jump into the interview. Welcome to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, Lily. Can you please start out by introducing yourself and letting everybody know a little bit about who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Yeah, sure. Hi, Heidi. Um, So I am Lily Rice. I am now a freelance sportswear designer. 
Um, I have been working in the industry for around 10 years um, and kind of always in the sportswear sector, but in various uh, roles. So I've worked for large companies. I've owned my own brand. And as I said, I now do freelance, which means I work with big companies and like really small startups or even pre-startups sometimes. Ah, very cool. So where did everything get started for you? Did you go to fashion school or or what was the beginning of your journey in fashion like? Yeah, I always had like a really big interest in fashion. And it was really funny, actually, because um, originally when I was kind of applying for unis and stuff like way back when, I was like, oh, I'm really into Matthew Williamson and Alice Templey. And I loved that kind of like embroidered look and all this kind of thing. And um, I went to Central St. Martins. So I did a foundation um, in London in Central St. Martins. Um, And then I decided to join a fashion um, degree. And I did that for a year. And it just really wasn't sitting with me and I just I was doing well but I just I just couldn't get it you know couldn't get to grips so I took a gap year and I went to Australia and then when I came back um the school that was super local to my parents um was running a sportswear course and I'd always really been into sports I played a lot of football or soccer um congratulations on the world cup by the way um (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah I kind of hate you guys at the moment um (laughs) And so, yeah, sportswear design was just a massive fit. And it was kind of one of those moments where, um, you know, had it been a year earlier or a year later, you know, it wouldn't wouldn't have worked. And so I was able to transfer my credits and um, slot into the second year with those guys. And so I did a degree in performance sportswear design. So it's pretty specific. Yeah, it's super specific. Um, and I want to get into that. We can chat about it a little bit more, but a little bit more later. But um, so what happened after that? You graduated and got into the industry? Yeah, so I graduated. And um, while I was graduating, my uh, course leaders had a friend who they had like links in Sri Lanka. And um, Sri Lanka is amazing for um, production. So they have some of the best factories out there. Um, But obviously, this wasn't too far after the kind of tsunami. And they had a lot of civil unrest. And so they were really looking to make global links. And so they invited myself and a few of the other guys on the course who um, had like done really well in their areas to go across because we were linked with a fashion course too. So there was like a swimwear designer that was myself doing sports. And then there was more fashion design going across and we worked in-house in the factories which was crazy because wow. yeah I was like I don't know how old are you when you graduate 21 20 You're pretty young. Like yeah 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 and um I'd never been abroad like that like to like a totally different country yeah. we literally had like schedules given to us and plane tickets and we were we were over there um so that was my first factory experience so yeah four months working there and we could basically design anything we wanted to go into Sri Lankan fashion week but it the idea was to show off the capabilities of the factory so we worked ah. super close with them and then they produced the collections and so, so this was almost like kind of like an internship through, mm-hmm. it was through your school well no it Oh. We were put together with it through the school, but no, it was completely separate. Oh. So it just happened to be, yeah, it was kind of strange. Um, yeah, and I've we never were heard paid, anything like this. Yeah, I think it kind of just was something they were trying, you know, like the factories really needed some fresh design ideas. They don't, I mean, now I think it's different, but back then I don't think that education and fashion and stuff was the same as it was over here. And they really wanted us to kind of show. And the factory that I worked with um, produces a lot of stuff for Victoria's Secrets, okay. for Nike. 
they do all the David Beckham sports stuff. They, I think now they do Ivy Park and all that kind of stuff too. So it's a big factory. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity to kind of see how everything was made and how it worked and sampling. Um, so that was my first kind of industry introduction. And then after that, I worked at Umbro, which at the time was owned by Nike, which I don't know how familiar you guys are um, yeah. over there with Umbra, I'm familiar but... with Umbra. It's a soccer brand, right? Or football for you guys, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it has massive heritage um, in the UK, but at the time it'd been owned by Nike. And so we were really lucky. We got to go across to um, Portland and work with the Nike guys um, and oh. see the Nike labs. And yeah, we had a really good relationship with them. So it was a really interesting because you were working for like a smaller company, UK based, but for a massive. Within global... Nike is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I stayed there a year. Um, oh, so not too but, long. Well, I stayed there a year and I think it was long enough. I mean, I guess there's differing advice for graduates, right? But for me, it was kind of like I learned the way that it worked, but I always felt a passion for women's sportswear and being a football brand in the UK, we didn't have a massive amount of women's um, designs. So mm-hmm. After about a year, I kind of felt it was the right time to leave, which turned out to be great because Nike sold them not too long afterwards. <laughs> and how did you secure that opportunity? I mean, I know you had the amazing experience at the factory in Sri Lanka, which is fantastic, but I know sometimes getting your first real job out of school can be a challenge. It sounds like so a pretty I, big job you got. Yeah, I mean, I was... I think I've been really lucky, but also like a lot of things have been serendipitous. Like um, I interviewed while I was still at school for Umbro and then kind of they were like, oh, no, we've gone a different way. Uh, Went across to Sri Lanka, did all that. And then when I got back, they were like, oh, actually, we'd like to invite you back in. Uh, And then like people had moved in the structure and then they decided to hire me. Okay. And I think there's something like we can almost kind of start to touch on this right now. But when you when you first introduced yourself to me um, and reached out to do the podcast, I noticed you brand yourself as the sportswear designer. And clearly that was what you said. You went into this very niche specialty in school. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. Like they probably looked at you like there's a ton of sort of broad scope spectrum designers or like women's wear, like men's or whatever. Um, But you were so niche that I imagine that even at that first job level had some value in securing you that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, my final um, collection as a a student was uh, women's football design. So I think, yeah, yeah, you're always kind of gearing your way. I think it's really hard to find your way as a student, you know, to to work out because like you say, the industry is so vast and there's so much you want to do. But I do think if you have a passion for something that it's worth kind of sticking to your guns and and putting your portfolio towards that. Um, You guys say niches, right? Like there's riches in the niches or is that? Yeah. Or I mean, some people say niche, but you say yeah. niche and here I would say it over here it's 50 50 I think but yeah but I think the saying is true whichever way you riches say in it. the niches I have heard that many yeah. times yeah I think there's another guest who has said that same exact thing and she's super niche or then here I go back to niche um she's super <laughs> niche as well yeah and I think then you know you have your unique selling point and yeah. you can create a really strong portfolio you know whether it's embroidery or digital print or sportswear, you know, you can really, and I mean, when I studied sportswear, there really wasn't the athleisure kind of trend. It was, it just didn't exist. So 
it was more following what I was passionate about than what was popular. I mean, now you could say, oh, yeah, I'm a sportswear designer. And it's like, okay, I get it because there's so much. Right. But at the time, there really wasn't that. And it was like that gap in the market. And having played sports, I really felt like I could put the two passions together. So I think if you do have that kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe you travel and you're like, oh, they really don't make this kind of clothing for traveling. You know, you can find that. Yeah. I love that. And I'll, I'll, we'll link to the other guest in our show notes. It's uh, Marissa Borelli. And she was a volleyball player. And she went into not specifically volleyball, but like very niche active wear. And she just kind of wound mm-hmm. up owning that market. And she also grew into freelance and now has a very successful career. But it, it's a lot of it has been driven because she's so hyper focused on that category. Um, mm. So I love hearing this again from you. Um, okay, and so I you think- Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say like knowing your customer too yes so it's like if you're passionate <laughs> like if you're I don't know maybe you do pageants and so therefore like yeah. gowns are your thing and it's like you know exactly what goes into it and how they need to fit and stuff and so you can really turn that to your advantage yeah and the other thing I talk about um I talk about this in my book on freelancing is that it's so it's a chore I shouldn't say a chore that sounds negative it's a job <laughs> to keep up on various industries to keep up on the trends, to keep up on textiles, to keep up on new construction techniques. And you can only keep up with so much. You can't design denim and lingerie and activewear and genuinely keep up with all of that stuff. Yet I see people out there trying to market themselves as these people that can do everything. I'm like, no, you kind of have to pick one thing. You can be super focused on it. And like you said, like if it's pageants and you just know organza and you know the customer, I don't really know much about pageantry, but like, (laughs) you know, all those, you know, those fine silks and whatever taffetas and stuff, then you can just be hyper focused on that and you can be the go-to expert, but it's hard to be that good at a bunch of things. Yeah, I just think there's like such a fear of, okay, if I put my stake in the ground and I I say, this is my thing, it's like, oh, I'm going to miss out on all this other work. And I do think like, you know, you can put your stake in the ground and you can say, oh, yeah, I'm sportswear. But every now and again, I still get asked to do some swimwear or, you know, more gym wear, which looks great, but is less kind of uh, performance. And I still do those bits, but my center and my focus you know, I wouldn't take on a denim project. I wouldn't take on a ball gown project, you know? (laughs) And I think it's that thing of um, being brave enough to to decide where you are and trusting that the work will come, you know, like if you're you're passionate and you work hard and you have a good portfolio, then they will find you for that particular um, job. Yeah. Did you have any reservations about sort of, you know, the, the term I hear a lot is like getting pigeonholed? No, not really. Okay. I think because I I wasn't really thinking about um, what other people were thinking about me, if you see what I mean. I was yeah. thinking about what I wanted to do in the industry. Okay. And what I wanted to do was, I felt at the time there was a massive gap in the market for women's sportswear. It was like, they took the men's and they made it pink and they made it small. And I was so sick oh, of that. Oh, God. It's so yeah. like, you remember, terribly formulaic. Yeah. And so it was like, and it was men designing women's sportswear too, a lot of the time, I think. And so for me, it was never about like whether I was going to be a sportswear designer. It was just that that I wanted to change that. And that was my passion. Okay. I love that. I love that. Um, And clearly it's worked for you. So we could nerd out on riches in the niches all day, but let's keep (laughs) going. Um, So so you were at Nike and Umbra for, you said about a year. And then what happened? So I decided, um, as many people seem to do, that 
it wasn't fitting in um, professionally, as in I wanted to do more women's sportswear, but also with my personal life, um, it was tricky because um, Umbra are really northern based and my family are from the south and my partner was in um, the middle. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll just go freelance. And I hadn't handed in my notice and I was in the car with a colleague and a radio advert came on um, for a TV program. And it was like, uh, you guys have Shark Tank. So it was a version of that. They were like, do you have a business idea blah 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 and it was with a guy called Richard Reed who's a founder of a smoothie brand over here um but I knew of him and his ethos is and it was like super in line with kind of my personal thoughts on things and so I went home that night and I applied for the tv show and I was just like yeah I know (laughs) and I was like okay I want to set up a women's sportswear brand and this is what I want to do and I had no like this was in my head for like, oh, in 10 years time, I'll do this. Okay. This and was, we're this... like, what are we in? Like 2011, 12, where are we at roughly? Uh, 2000, early 2012, I think. Okay. Okay. Just we to get a it. rough gauge. Yeah. Okay. We filmed the show 2012. Okay. So you so got on the show. <laughs> I got on the show. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a really pointless story if I didn't get on the show, right? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes you got to try and maybe some other thing came out of it. But anyways, okay. So keep going. So I got on the show. Um, there were loads of stages to it, but the essential part of the show was that he was picking young business people who, or startups and giving you a little bit of cash and you had to do certain things. So they decided, I think I had six weeks, I had to design a collection, get it made, set up a manufacturer and get a buyer. That's six weeks. so short amount of time. Like that's insane. While being filmed. Okay. So what was that like? It was pretty strict. Oh, and I had to write a business plan, which I'd never done. Okay, because um, you went to fashion school. You didn't go to business yeah. school. <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't sat at home doing business plans in the evening at fashion school. Yeah, what a shame. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty crazy, but it was, you know, a baptism of fire. And it was one of those things as well where I get a lot of startups come to me now. And I feel like you can spend so long doing things, yeah. which has its merits, but, but. there's also time when you kind of have to just do stuff so yeah so I just kind of um zipped forward found a manufacturer found a local pattern cutter got it made um I found a buyer so um I had an uh, online retailer um young British designers said that they would stock me when it went into production and the end of the show was um whether he would invest in you so at the end of the show he decided what well, him and his uh, co-investees invested £30,000 into wow. the So they liked what they saw. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was then, I don't know how old, and landed with £30,000 and a new business to run. Wow. Okay. Um, do you know why they picked you? Why they picked to invest? I think they could see the opportunity and that I really had I always really had a hold on the brand and what the brand was about and also I think my general personality was really helpful he called me ballsy (laughs) (laughs) I really like that she's ballsy I didn't take no for an answer and I just got stuff done during the show whereas I think a lot of others were kind of like paralyzed by that whole six weeks thing and the cameras and for me it was just a massive opportunity okay and so what exactly had you designed and shown them so I designed a collection and started a brand called Lexi. Um, so it was women's sportswear designed for women by women. Um, and it was really at the time quite 
forward. Um, it was very um, printed leggings, um, a lot of geometrics, Art Deco inspired. And I think it was quite different to what was on the market at the time. Yeah. So um, kind of post the show, we launched and we had a pop-up shop on the King's Road and we had like Our Magazine come. Um, so and we, we were in vogue before we launched. Wow. Uh, How did you get yeah. that? Uh, I got a phone call. Hi, this is Vogue. No way. <laughs> yeah, I had an email and then they were like, yeah, hi, this is Vogue. We want to put some of your stuff in the thing, which is hilarious because what a lot of people don't realize as well is like when Vogue calls you, um, they just go, yeah, we want to put your stuff in the magazine. Can you drop it there by tomorrow? It's like and you literally, they need it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. You just drop everything and get on a train and then you go to the back door of Vogue House and like, <laughs> you're like, this is no Devil Wears Prada moment. It's oh like a really... God. Yeah, really unimpressed porter who sat behind a desk in like a postal depot. And you're like, hi, I brought my thing. Oh my it's God, so exciting. And Vogue. And then the guy goes, mm-hmm. He does here. not care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. And had the show aired by this time? I don't think so. Okay, no. so who knows even I don't know. about you? I, yeah, I have no idea. Okay. Maybe because we had the website kind of up and going and stuff. So yeah, we were in Vogue really early. Okay. Um, I was just really lucky as well with PR and I quickly worked out the way that social media worked. So tracking down the journalists and following them and because it was my company and it was my passion, I could find common ground with the journalists. So I wouldn't just like, I see so many people on social media just like banging on a door, like, Hey, you're cute. Where are clothes? And it's like, no one's going to buy that. Like that's not how social media works. So it was more like I would find the journalist for the, um, say the, the exercise page in L and I would follow her and she would write like, Oh, I've done this class. And I'd be like, Oh, I've done that class. It's amazing. And kind of build that relationship. And then eventually, she'd say like oh I'm going on holiday to try this spin class and I'd be like you know what you should take some of our clothes mm. and then they'd be like oh I would love to do that can you send them to me like really so- creating a genuine connection and, yeah. and, and and then hitting them right at a point that's strategic mm-hmm. you're like oh okay take this to the spin class you're not just shoving in their face all the time exactly and yeah. through that we were really lucky and we got in like all the main publications pretty quickly without a PR company which wow. you know was great um so yeah so then I ran the brand for three years and how did that go um it went really well in terms of we did I'm trying to think now mm, well we must have done around four collections we had international stockists we were stocked I'm trying to think impressive places we were stocked and now my brain is like um so you were selling uh, wholesale did you do any direct to consumer yes we sold online oh you did online and we did pop-up shops in tube stations in London so we had um old street we had a big pop-up shop there and we had exercise classes we had oh we sell we sold on Oxford street in House of Fraser we had a pop-up shop in House of Fraser on Oxford street for uh, like a month um and then we and we got extra funding so we were the first brand to have funding from Richard Branson's um oh, wow. so I got to meet Richard Branson wow. um which was really cool yeah uh, a little more glamorous than the Vogue moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is the thing so there were heaps of glamorous moments I went to 10 Dining Street to talk about um commerce um we had amazing moments but the bottom line is it wasn't massively profitable. Because, I was like, going to uh, put you on the spot and ask, were you mm-hmm. able to make it profitable? No, because I went to fashion school, not business school, right? Yeah. And it's, and this, 
tricky it's a thing. long-term game like you don't really become yes. profitable in in you know a few years in a fashion brand sometimes mm-hmm. it can take upwards of five plus years exactly and this was so come year three we were selling but I, I wouldn't come year three. I needed to take on more investment was the key. Mm-hmm. I needed a big investment to push us over that line because there comes a point where we were selling really well, but it was still costing us loads because in real terms, we were still on small quantities and I just had a baby and we wanted to move away from London because we were living on the outskirts of London. And I just decided, you know what? I've got freelance opportunities. This is going to work for me. And I closed the brand. Like, it sounds like you just kind of made a made it the decision pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think when you run your own brand and it's just you, you're doing every role and that's super stressful. It's 100%, like 100%, 100% of the time, yeah. you know, like you're everything. So I was PR, I was design, I was social media, I was packing, I was... Accounting, everything, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, a lot of shitty jobs too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is what I think, you know, when I approached the podcast, it was like, there's so much you don't realize, like design becomes such a small part of it. And I still loved it. But I think when your personal life shifts, um, and your opportunities shift too, um, for me, it was like, you know what, this is no longer the right thing to do at this time. And also I learn now, you know, so many entrepreneurs that become massively successful have had previous businesses that they then closed. Yeah. So it's, you never like see the full, it's like the iceberg effect. You only see what's on the surface. You don't see like the 20 years that came before that, that like built the foundation. Completely. Yeah. And so that's why I decided as well to close and not sell because I was like, I still own everything and I still am. That brand is still me. Yeah. So if in 20 years I'm like, you know what, I, I want to do it again, then it's yeah. there for me to, to do. So, you you know, when you said you left Nike, you specifically said, I left Nike to go freelance. And then on a whim, you, like, heard this ad on the mm-hmm. radio. You applied for this show. You got on. And then it turned into this, like, three-year adventure of you running your fashion brand. Was that really, like, the only reason you didn't go freelance was, like, that was the whole change in trajectory was, like, hearing this ad and then going on this show? Yeah, completely. Okay. Like, but I think, too, I was naive and I thought, oh, I'll quit my job and I'll go freelance and that'll be fine. And actually, had I done that, probably wouldn't have been fine. Whereas having run Lexi and having had all the factory experience and the startup experience and the exposure, when I did then go freelance, my first year of freelance was just phenomenal because I had, you know, awards to back it up. Whereas had I done that just as you know, a graduate with one small position behind me, maybe it wouldn't have gone so well for me. Yeah. It's something like I get a lot of people asking and and um, emailing me about, you know, I've just graduated. I want to go freelance. And I'm very hesitant to, you know, I, I, I've, I've known people that have done it and they can make it work, but it's the very rare person. I think you need to have that background, that experience, the brand names, the like, you know, in your position, the awards to kind of back yourself up and not only like legitimize yourself, but also just the pure knowledge of it. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I lecture um, sometimes too now. And while the students are amazingly talented, and I and I love to do it because I learn so much from them and yeah. their perspectives. 
they 100% lack the industry knowledge, which yep. is no fault of their own. You no, just have, you to, have to get it. it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, obviously I follow you and your stuff comes through social media at me and it'll be like, how long does it take you to do a tech pack? And I'm like, yes, Heidi. Yes, you are so, because it, because it's no good if it takes you three hours to do a tech pack. Or you like know, a week. I mean, I've heard some rough numbers. I'm like, what? No, you cannot spend a week on one tech pack. You got to bust out like five or seven a day. And also, what are your tech packs looking like? I mean, they have to be industry standard. It's no good saying you're a freelancer and then, you know, not knowing what an industry standard tech pack looks like. So I think working in industry, you know, employed under someone else is a really great idea. But and also it gives you fire. I think, you know, some people suit that. I have so many friends who work in industry and they love it. They love the all. I mean, it's never nine to five, but they love the nine to five style. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The camaraderie, the idea that they, you know, have a paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I thrive, I guess, more on the up and down of freelance, the the newness, the different clients. And so I think working in industry for at least a little bit gives you a sense of who you are. Yeah. So, okay, so then you you shut down Lexi, um, your sportswear brand, and you, after running for three years, and you decided to go right into freelancing. You said your first year was phenomenal. Tell us a little bit about how that went and how you got some of those first clients and what that really looked like. So I had my daughter May 2015, and so I shut Lexi at, like, Christmas the end of that year. Okay. And then the following April, so 2016, I started freelance. Um, I set it up, uh, no, it must be the year after, because I set it up in the Christmas. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I remember it was New Year's Eve and I was building my website. So yeah, it was the year after. And uh, I set my website, but then I like didn't do anything with it. Um, and then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to cold email like a load of people. Like I yeah. figure that I figure that's how how you do it. Um, So I just wrote this email being like, hi, this is who I am. These are the awards and the things I've done. You know, if you want to work with me, let me know. I literally had no idea. I had people email me, be like, yeah, we want to work with you. And then I had to message my friend who's also in freelance and be like, so how much do I charge? What do I do now? (laughs) Yeah. So you sent like some really basic cold emails and they totally worked. Yeah. But what I think is or what I've learned is the industry changes and I've heard other people talk about this and stuff on your podcast of like how you know you used to be able to I don't know use Craigslist or however you did and now you know it's a lot more of a social game um and so I think even a couple of years ago you know cold emails was acceptable whereas now I think yeah I think that's not necessarily the game plan I would use if I was to start today yeah Okay, so you sent those and you kind of validated yourself with some awards and you were maybe it sounds like a soft CTA. Like, if you want to work with me, like, let me know. Nothing like aggressive. Um, yeah. And, and then people just came back to me and then it just kind of rolled. I mean, I had a website up and running, which was good. It probably had terrible SEO and all that jazz, but it was there and I could direct people and I had my LinkedIn page. Um, and then I had a few gigs through word of mouth. Um, and so there, the first year went really well. Uh, and then my second year was so quiet. Oh, interesting. What happened? 
Well, you know, so like I said, I have a few friends in freelance and it was quiet for them too. I had, I still had work, but so much more quiet. And what I think happens in industry quite a lot is, you know, they, they hire staff and they work in house and then for whatever reason, it doesn't work out and then they leave and then they want a freelancer. So then you work and then you do well and they love it. But then in the meantime, they're hiring someone else and then it goes in this really weird circle of like, okay, we don't want you now because we've got in-house. <laughs> and then it's like, and then I've literally had clients call me back up and be like, so I had one client who was like, we should do a project. I'm like, yeah, yeah, great. And then they ghosted me and I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. And then and like six weeks later, they call me and say, that new, that project, yeah, can you turn it around in like a month? And I was like, <laughs> what happened? And they're like, oh yeah, the staff member that was going to do it left. Yeah. And so I think that tends to happen a lot, especially, you know, with the political situations and things of people getting hired and leaving it's tricky but also I think it's hard to sometimes when you're in the beginning there's so many things I do differently now to when I first started my clients yeah like what kind of things like asking for referrals so yeah let's talk this is my favorite way to get new work so let's talk about it (laughs) (laughs) like I just finished up with a client and um this was something that it was for an athlete so I kind of knew it was a one-time gig rather than a continuing thing and he was like yeah you know thanks for working with blah 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 and I said you know I know you're really busy but when you get chance if you could put anything on email for me to say how it was working with me that'd be great um and just having those quotes that you can then put on your social media or put on your website to say you know this person said this about working with me as a reference and you can go back to them um I feel always gives people like a really strong sense of who you are and and how you worked with someone especially if the person giving the referral is identifiable or reachable then they can be like oh I can trust you because the web's like when you look at Upwork and freelancer and stuff the web's full of so-called freelancers yeah. you know yeah. how do you pick one so having like really good references I think is amazing or just straight up saying to them you know you know now we finished this project obviously I'm going to have some time in my diary so if you want to refer me to anyone that'd be great yeah and it can, it can take some courage and confidence, though, to get comfortable asking those questions. Like, I know people who struggle asking for the testimonials and the feedback. Like, they just and, – and it's something I've done for a long time, so maybe I, I think I've gotten a little bit in tune with it and, and not numb to the process, but, like, it just doesn't phase me anymore. Um, but I think when you're first doing that, it's, like, really hard to ask for that. It's really hard to ask them to refer you to someone else. You're, you're almost like, am I being an imposition or am I asking them to do too much work? Or I don't know if you felt any of those things, but it can be uncomfortable at first. When I first started, something I did um, a lot of was setting up templates on my laptop. So I have like a quote template, an invoice template, but also like setting up things like asking for referrals. So you can like practice like how you want to ask for it before you do it and then kind of get your tone right, if you know what I mean, on a pages document. And then you can just copy and paste it. So you don't even have to think about it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then you don't even have to face it because you just go into that document, copy, paste, send. You don't even have to think about what you're asking. I love that. I love that. Quick interruption in this episode to let you know that if you're enjoying this conversation, I have tons more resources and advice for you on freelancing. I am running a program starting in January of 2020 called Successful Fashion Freelancer. And you can get on the wait list to hear more about that program when it opens. And you can also get my ultimate guide to being a freelance fashion designer absolutely free 
Just go to SoHeidi.com slash freelance. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash freelance. I will send you all the details on the program when it opens, as well as the free ultimate guide. And if you miss the January 2020 window, you can still go to that webpage and sign up, and I will let you know the next time that program opens. All right, now let's jump back to the conversation. Um, okay, so what else did you learn that first year that you would do differently now? Um, a lot of basics of, you know, timekeeping. So using a timekeeping app to kind of, even if you're not billing the client, um, you know, like if you've already said a set amount to them, but it's great for you to see how long you're taking with things because it can be so different to what you think. (laughs) Right. Like in your head, you think things don't take very long. No. And you think, oh, you know, I'll just get this done and it'll be like two days and blah, blah, blah. Six days later, you're still there. I'm working out as well. Like for me, I'm a fairly quick worker, but my issue tends to come from waiting for feedback from clients. Mm -hmm. So that can be a really tricky skill to learn, like how to, how to deal with your diary when you're like juggling clients and waiting for feedback. And they all always give feedback on the same day. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know and what you have like a hundred changes to make at once <laughs> yeah and I'm like how do you guys know that you're all emailing on the same day <laughs> but again that's like a really great point as well like things I didn't know when I first started so like um making sure you have really good contracts and clauses in your contracts so like how many changes are you willing to make like rounds yes. of changes yes. and things like that be very what- specific in that. Like you get three yeah. rounds of revisions and then you can be flexible and reasonable with certain customers. I always yeah. have been, but you can go down to like 10, 20 revisions. And if you didn't put anything in your contract and you're working on a project basis, you can be in a bad spot really fast. Mm-hmm. And learning to get everything on email too, because yeah. it's nice to chat, but you have to get it on email so that, you know, they can't turn around and say, yeah, but that's what I told you. And yeah. you're like, mm-hmm. but yeah, the revision thing can really eat into your, into your budget, into your life. So what sort of lessons did you learn with pricing? And you don't have to share numbers of like, you know, how much you charge per hour or like for a certain project or you can, it's up to you. But <laughs> I'm more just curious to know, like on a bigger scale, like, did you start out doing hourly and then realize, you know, I can, I'm really fast and I should be doing project or did you start out doing project and realize you kind of got screwed because it took too long or, you know, these are really big stumbling blocks for a lot of people. So I'm curious to know what sort of pricing structures and lessons, uh, structures you implemented and then what did you learn? from that so I always kind of started with a day rate and Uh, so my package that I tend to offer someone is um, initial designs two sets of reviews um, and then your final designing CAD pack and I kind of bill for like a day and a half for that so I just use that as kind of a set gauge but you kind of need to change it per client sometimes too like this is the thing it's a really tricky industry because personally I always feel that we should be more transparent with our charges because I feel like by not doing that we give the power to the clients because it's like they can play you off with pricing and stuff really easily and say well I can get it cheaper and you kind of never know because you don't know what the next freelancer is charging yeah so I have like a little network which is like a really cool idea like if you have friends who are freelancers or ex-colleagues to just say like hey like do you guys want to kind of link up on whatsapp or whatever and uh you know just check in and so like I have a little network of a couple of uh 
of friends where I'll say, you know, I've got this project and I'm thinking of charging this. Like, what do you guys think? And we just kind of bounce off each other on that to kind of give an idea. And it's funny too, because we've had times when we've had the same client. So we've, we've known that the clients come to both of us, but the client hasn't known that. Or I had another time when I had a really crappy client who didn't pay me for ages and ages and ages. And then one of my friends posted on social media, oh, I've landed this job because it was a huge company doing like a separate thing for this huge company and so I I emailed him and I was like dude I'm really pleased for you but please make sure you get paid and he was like I'll totally get paid I'll totally get paid and then like six months later he's like you were so right they took ages to pay me Ah. like yeah exactly so um yeah so I think you know if you can work with um, other freelancers or you know I'm on social um, media networks as well like uh, freelancing females and things like that just to kind of like bounce ideas around that that's really helpful but yeah I kind of worked at a rough day rate which I have increased since I started too because that's the other thing to remember is to give yourself a pay rise every yeah. now and again yeah it's really easy to get stuck and then not realize that hey if I worked in a company I'd, I'd be, be getting, getting a- an increase right right and always give yourself that buffer because like you say like the client that is quicker than than you anticipate is like the golden goose like I think I've got like two or three clients where they're so straightforward I'm sometimes like I should give you money back because you're so good to me um, <laughs> but like all my other clients it's like a hundred changes um so yeah building that buffer in is is a key thing to learn so um I have a lot of questions um the the pay raise one, I love that you brought this up and I think it's super, super important, but I think it can be really, really hard for people to do. How did you broach that topic with existing clients or how did you build that into to your work process working with existing and new clients? I, so, you know, we were talking, um, you know, how do you do things that you're afraid to do and how do you, um, say stuff you don't want to say? I think for me, business is business. Um, especially as a woman, I think you need to be tough and, and just say things sometimes. Yeah. No guys (laughs) would, right? Like guys will say stuff sometimes. We're sat there like going, uh, 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 and it's like, no, just say it. So I think if you're increasing your prices, if that's what you've decided to do, just send a, send an email out to all your existing clients and say, um, you know, from such and such a day, um, we've decided to increase our prices and to reflect the current economy. We've not done a price increase since blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, and we hope that you can respect this and that this reflects the quality of our work. And we look forward to continuing to work with you. And just be like straight up. Like, you know, anyone else would do that. Yeah. And you did that. And how did it go over with the existing clients? Yeah, I mean, fine. I think because we're freelancing, or at least with how I price, like everything tends to be on a project price. Like I've heard other freelancers who like really break everything down. And I think it depends what uh, kind of area you work in. But for me, working in garment design and sportswear design, it's kind of like, okay, this is my set price for the project, you know. So it kind of was just eaten in like by the project. It wasn't like, oh, here's your previous project price and now it's this. Because my clients, you know, will come back and one season it's, you know, a 30-piece collection and the next season it will be a 48-piece collection. So it's never like the same thing exactly. Right, so it kind and of, you charge yeah. per piece per mm-hmm. – okay, gotcha. But I don't like break it down for them unless they particularly like I've I only ever really get like startups who are doing like can I have a four piece collection and I'm like okay it's this much per piece um but for kind of like a bigger brand it's generally like okay this is my fee 
So it's less of an issue. And also sometimes I think we're so much more conscious of it than they are. Like, you know, they're not paying, they're not paying your maternity allowance. They're not paying your sickness pay. You know, you have to deliver the goods that you've promised. So the fact that you, you're charging this amount is how much it is. Yeah, but I think we're, and, and I, I totally get that. And I'm, I'm tend to be a little bit more assertive like yourself, but, um, I've grown that way over the years. I wasn't always that way, but, um, I think that we so often hear, and especially from fashion brands, and especially because, I mean, one of the challenges I think we have in this industry is there's so many people lined up to take that job, and they're willing to do it for pennies on the dollar that, you know, like you said earlier, you can have that client say, well, I can get it done for cheaper, that it can feel very, very hard to validate yourself and and validate your pricing and not be worried that you're going to lose that to someone who's cheaper or to not even just like completely undercut yourself in the first place. I mean, I a lot of people share their numbers with me. You know, I'm charging this. What should I be doing? And I'm like, oh, my gosh you're charging way too low. And it's almost like everybody's, if, if a lot of people do that, it, it becomes a vicious circle for us, right? Um, I know people who are exceptional workers and they still charge really, really low. Or it takes them like five years to like really get to a rate that's like, okay, now you're in a space that I feel is more warranted for your work ethic. Um, but have you ever had to deal with, um, you know, the brands going, well, it's just too expensive, we can get it cheaper and, and having that really affect your bottom line in terms of like, I need the work, I need the money or I don't know, I just feel like a lot of people get stuck in that situation. I think you're always going to be at risk of being undercut. You could charge $5 for a design and there'll yeah. still be someone that will say, I'll do it for free. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you do it for free. And then when, when they F it up, you come back to me and I'll <laughs> fix it for you, you know, and then you can pay me my rate. Yeah. You know, this is the thing you're paying, you're pay, you pay, you get what you pay for. Yes. So yeah. They're paying for my, they're not paying for the design. They're paying for my knowledge. They're paying for my expertise. They're paying for my experience. You know, um, there's this whole thing on like, I can do it quicker than a student. So shouldn't I charge less because I've done it quicker. And it's like, no, actually what they want is these designs done really well by their deadline. And I can deliver that. So stick to your guns. But again, it goes back to, I think, as a freelancer community, we need to have more transparency over, you know, what we're charging and, and how that works. And it's tricky because it's hard to, you know, say, oh, I'm charging this. And like you say, like you hear some people and then you're like, that's so low, you know. And and but I think the more we put things out there and talk about pricing and, you know, how to increase your pricing and strategies and listening to podcasts like this, then the more we can kind of get it out there and, and have that power. But sure, you can charge, you know, as low as you want, there'll still be someone that does it cheaper. So I kind of don't think that's a great pricing strategy. I think working out what you're worth, maybe what your peers who, who you value are charging, um, or even working out, you know, what you need to survive on yeah. uh, so that you can kind of backdate it is the way forward. I mean, like I said, I the first year I did um, phenomenally well on freelance. The second year it was quieter. And so, you know, then obviously that eats into your bottom line. And I'm lucky that um, I'm married, so I'm in the position where I can kind of work that out. But sure, it can be really tricky. And that's when it's kind of working out if freelance is the right gig for you because yeah. you're not assured a steady income. And one of the things I'm still learning is like, 
how to take your year's salary, so say, as a freelancer and make it spread out as a salary. Because it's tricky, right? You get a big project in and you're like, oh, I got all this cash. <laughs> yeah, let's go spend it. Um, and that's so not the way to run it. <laughs> yeah. You have to pace it so that like maybe you can divvy that up and that could be a paycheck for three months because mm-hmm. something else might not come in. Mm-hmm. And you'll definitely have quiet times. Yeah, Everyone has quiet times. doesn't matter how successful you are because the more successful you get, the more uh, your barometer of like what's busy or what's, you know, a good month changes. So you'll always have what you consider a quiet month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to contract or counter what you said. You said, you know, that's the thing with freelance is that you can have really slow times and your income can go, can go down. But I mm-hmm. also um, and, and I know that it doesn't work for everybody. Like some a lot of people really like that security of the paycheck. And I absolutely get that. But one thing that I've always really loved about the freelancing world is that on the contrast, you have more control to increase your pay than you mm-hmm. have. You can either get out there and F and hustle and get some more work or raise your rates or, you know, ask for more referrals or whatever it is, you're in a position of way more control to also increase it when times do get slow. Or even if you're like doing pretty well and you're like, you know what, I want to kick butt this year and I want to hit this crazy number. And, you know, if you're charging, if you're not charging per hour, you have got a lot more flexibility to grow that. Um, mm-hmm. So for some people, I think that can also be very attractive or, you know, the, the option to take a month off and like not think about work for a minute. Yeah. I mean, you can fit it in so well around your life and, and work from anywhere as well. Like I yeah. often get a client who's like, oh, are you in London? I'm like, nope. And I'm like, but I'll Skype with you. And, yeah. you know, I was going to have- ask about your remote setup. Yeah, I have clients, you know, all over the world. And it's just not an issue. I mean, with today's kind of technology and the things you can do, I just don't find it an issue to kind of chat to people online. Um, I do a lot through email, you know, getting sent stuff. I do have clients who will post me things, so like fabric swatches. Mm -hmm. And I do have clients that I meet in person um, or meetings that I go to. Um, And even since going freelance, um, I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Switzerland, uh, where else have I been? London heaps of times. But yeah, you know, I get flown places by the clients to do work. So it's not that, you know, once you go freelance, you're just sat in your little like living room on a laptop. Like <laughs> you get out <laughs> you there definitely, sometimes. Yeah, you definitely do. Right. So you have this network. So it's great. And have the majority of your clients continue to come through word of mouth and asking for referrals? Yeah. So I still, um, do like, I suppose I still do cold call emails every now and again. I haven't done one for like ages, but less cold call and more just like, Hey guys, this is what I'm up to. Hope you're good. Cause a lot of them are kind of like contacts or contacts of contacts. So it's kind of all like within that. Um, and then, yeah, I do, I do try to update kind of my LinkedIn and I'm jumping and on the social media and kind of working out that I need to push that now because this is the other thing with freelance is it's like constantly evolving which is amazing so you're like always learning something you're never static it's like you say you can just get out there and hustle and pick stuff up which is amazing um I never kind of suited that whole like being in an office and just waiting for the creative director to tell me what to do um I love the idea of kind of I don't know who could email me tomorrow and what project I'm going to be on and yeah I get a lot of word of mouth um through that I had a great project this year which um, was for a cycling brand which was from a blogger who I used to have come to PR events when I own my own brand 
So, you know, you there's really, know. yeah, exactly. It's really random links. And a lot of my ex colleagues now are all different brands. So, you know, the people you work with today can really become your freelance network too. And it sounds like you do a pretty good job at trying to keep in touch with people. I know you mentioned, you made the comment of, oh, I reach out to people and I just say like, oh, hey, how's it going? This is what I'm working on. Like just a touch point, right? Yeah. And I think it's showing interest as well in other people. Like I'm not always just like, oh, hey, this is what I'm doing. But like, you know, on LinkedIn, I'm I'm really trying to push myself to be like, get off Facebook and get on LinkedIn because, <laughs> you know, like Facebook is great for your friends, but LinkedIn, you can find like, you can check out what everyone's doing and just kind of commenting on stuff because I think sometimes it twigs people's brains and they're like, oh yeah, that project, that's the person we need, totally. you know? Yes. So I think it's important, even, but to be genuine too, you know, yeah. don't just comment. Like I hate when you get those comments, they're like, great job. And you're like, you didn't like, give me something that's specific <laughs> and like really be, be genuine about it. Like mm-hmm. pretend this is your best friend's post and you're commenting. You wouldn't just give her, it's like those generic auto comments that you get on uh, Instagram. Drive me crazy. It's like engage, right? Yeah, engage. like genuine engagement. Yeah, yeah, so I think that's really important. And it's part of your job as a freelancer. Yeah, it is to maintain those relationships and that sort of, I say network, it's kind of can be looked at as like a gross word, but like those relationships and those friendships and just keep in touch with people. It's true. I kind of view it as like all the meetings you get to skip out on because you're not in an office. <laughs> you still have to do you that. You make kind up of, for it with this. That exactly. Oh, but you I love that. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. It's true though, right? It's totally true now that you say it, yeah. You're not doing that kind of meeting Sandra from the other shoe department or whatever, but you can do it online now or, you know, going to events and stuff like that. So you mentioned social media. Is there a specific, maybe it's not Facebook, is it Instagram? Where are you thinking about putting a little bit of energy? So I've been working this year on refreshing my website, which I think is like a really important thing to bring up too, is that when you're freelance, it's really easy to get caught in the work, which is great because obviously you're busy and you're doing the work, but to also remember that like your online profile is working for you in the background and to like put energy into that. So, um, you know, obviously I've been busy doing my projects, but I've kind of trying to take some time to go back and uh, analyze what I've been doing to get future work so that when these projects are finished, stuff still coming in. So this year I've been um, working with a graphic designer and redoing my website. And then I've been setting up Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Behance, LinkedIn. I'm on it. I'm trying. Oh my gosh, you're trying to do all of it. Mm. Doesn't that feel overwhelming? Yes, very. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It totally does. It totally does. And I've come to the agreement with myself that it's like, okay, you're not going to post every day. Like when I had my own brand, because I ran all of that with my own brand, I I was like every day it had to be something. Whereas with this, I'm like, okay, quality content over like all the time, because I just don't think it's, you know, I'm, I'm one person. I can't post all the time, but I think it's great to have your voice out there for, for different people to see, especially stuff like Instagram where it's visual. I mean, Twitter's great for engaging in the conversation, but I feel like as a designer, Instagram for me is a really useful tool to show what I'm looking at, what I'm working on, what I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I'd be curious to check in with you maybe in a year and see like how that, how that's panned out for you. Cause I think it's something that a lot of people talk about, Oh, I need to do all the social media. 
And I think that there's a time and a place to do it, but I also think it can become really overwhelming. So, you know, you are obviously very... It's very time consuming. Yeah. So it's like you're at a pretty established place. And so you're like, okay, I've got these other systems in place. This stuff is running. I've got these projects coming Mm -hmm. in. And now it's like you have the mental space maybe to like try to tackle this next big thing. But like when you're first starting out, trying to do all that stuff is really intense. Yeah, I completely agree. Like if I was giving advice to someone who's like, oh, I want to start tomorrow, I would say get your website up and running and in a really good place and get your LinkedIn in a really good place. Because I think that's where a lot of, uh, especially from the big companies where they've got a HR person, that's where they're looking. Um, And also like your website really works for you. Like if someone says to me, oh, do you have a portfolio? I'm like, okay, here's my website portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, because... I think I used to do the PDF thing and I, I will do it again just so I've got one because some old school people are like, oh, I need a PDF, but your website can work so much harder for you. And so I think that's the key. And then with all the social stuff, like, like you're saying it, it comes later. I think, you know, when you've established, like I was saying, I've got my templates for my quotes and my invoices and my responses. So I can breathe in that sense. And I just focus on the work. And now I'm trying to pull the work more into my personal life. So like if I'm out and I just see some like amazing design or amazing color, I can just snap it and Instagram it and be like, oh, I saw this color. This would work so well in a sportswear design. Yeah. I want to throw out a quick disclaimer, at least from my side, um, (laughs) of the website can work really well and you can send people directly there if it is really hyper-focused, which yours is on sportswear. But if you have got a a portfolio with – sweater knits and lingerie, mm-hmm. like lingerie and denim. I mean, those are very extreme categories, but still mm-hmm. like if you have a website portfolio that has such a variety of stuff that the customer's going to, or the potential, the prospect customer's going to go there and feel confused and say, well, this isn't my brand. This isn't what I need. Then that can become a bigger challenge. And I think as well, it's like when we're talking about this social media thing, like for me, I I go to a lot of sports events. We do a lot of sports stuff in my personal life. So the opportunity to take photos that are relevant to my brand works but that's why I think when you're going freelance make sure it's something that works for you you know like I have a friend um she's a freelance designer and she is so passionate about kind of ecological issues and fabrics that are great for the environment and everything like but that works for her she's a surfer she lives that lifestyle and so her brand it's it's see it's like tacky to say like your network your brand but it's true right your brand is is who you are so it's finding that and I think that's the only way to be successful because otherwise you'll get so tired of working really really hard to like make ball gowns when actually all you wear is sportswear you know (laughs) and it's not to say like oh you have to be uber uber glamorous to work in a certain area like if that's your passion that's cool like I don't wear sportswear 100% of the time but sport is a big part of my interest and my life so it works for me yeah no I think those are all great points um, can you talk a little bit about the differences and some of the experiences you've had working for startups versus working for these larger established brands? Cause a lot of people come to me and they ask like, should I take this startup opportunity? You know, I don't know. Are they going to pay? Is it just going to be too much handholding? Like, can you just share a little bit about your experiences and, and what some of that process is like in, in comparison and contrast to, you know, the bigger names? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think all those questions are completely valid. Like 
startups are a lot more work than the bigger <laughs> things. Like, yeah. Um, and I keep saying like, oh, I'm not going to do it because you don't get paid <laughs> much and it's a lot of handholding. Um, but I do love it. Like, it's weird for me. It's kind of like doing the big brands is amazing because you get to see your clothes on a huge scale. You know, like you often see them on celebrities or in big advertising campaigns that you didn't even know were going to happen because, you know, this big brands hired you and you've just done the clothes and they've gone. Um, but it tends to be a lot more formulaic of like, oh, here's our creative, if they've done it, like here's our creative design. This is the number of pieces. This is the number of colors just do it. And that's great as a freelancer. Like that's like, okay, I can tick this box and have this done in this many weeks. And generally that works a lot better for your budget too. Cause you're like, okay, that's exactly what I costed you for. Yeah. Uh, but with the startups, it tends to be a lot more woolly and they're never quite sure. And they need a lot more help. But then I think the rewards can be amazing. Like I worked for an amazing girl who started an equestrian brand and I literally designed her launch collection and she's just taken it and flown and the brand just looks amazing. And again, it was one of those things where um, she was a rider and so she knew so much about what she wanted and the exact look, but she didn't have the fashion skills. Mm -hmm. So, you know, working with her to explain um you know, this is another thing as well, like going back to like how you should work in industry first too. It's like, okay, anyone can design, but design and knowing about like fabric minimums and fabric usage and how to make that work over a collection and why you don't want to do that cuff in a rib as opposed to this, because then you'll have to order 500 meters of that specific color. Yeah. Um, it's stuff you learn. And when you work with startups, you spend a lot of time educating. I think, you just have to like, maybe you can't necessarily build it into your billing because they can't afford that, but building it into, are you willing to give that, you know, if you're willing to give that extra bit of time to a startup, then it's cool and take that on board. But if you just want to be a bit more wham bam, I think sticking to the medium size and the larger businesses is where it's at. Yeah. And where have most of your startup clients come from? Where do they find you? I have no idea. They come from my website. <laughs> they do. They come from my website. So yeah. you must be getting some type of like Google or SEO traffic. And I imagine that's because you're using very focused keywords because you're under sportswear designer and you that's probably the type of verbiage you talk about on your site. It is indeed. But I guess it's kind of doing self-promotion too and, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I hark on about like LinkedIn all the time, but I do think people find me through that too. You know, like they find me on there and they go through my website um, because again, like I'm niche on there. So I don't think there's that many of us. And I am also on things like Upwork and I don't know, freelancer and stuff, which I have my profile on there, but I don't really like, I don't get work directly through there. But I think maybe because I come up on these things, then people find my website and contact me. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, I don't know your numbers, but I imagine you maybe you're priced a little bit out of those, that specific, um, the client that tends to be on Upwork and freelancer. Yeah, I think so. It's a, that's a really tricky space, and I it also is. think if you're, if you're starting, that can be a really demoralizing space. It can. Oh my gosh, people are like want a tech pack literally for five dollars. <laughs> I have a person in my network on LinkedIn who posts all the time and does a similar job to me, or does the same job as me actually, and. Um, I noticed they were on Upwork the other day and I like clicked and then I saw how much they were charging. It was so low. Oh, no. And I was like, I don't know whether to be like, 
annoyed that you're pricing so low and like undercutting me or just like feel terribly bad that you're going to do that work for that price because that was hardcore. Yeah. It's interesting because um, one of the concepts I've talked a little bit about in some of the programs I run with when it comes to pricing, it's like people value what they pay for. So it's like if I'm going to hire a freelancer and they're like, I charge $15 an hour, I'm like, well, how good could you really be versus this other one who's charging 50 or 75 or even 125 All of a sudden I'm like, well, they must be really good. And it's just a psychological perception, but, like, you can actually be doing yourself a huge disservice by, even if you're amazing, by charging, and maybe 15 is extreme, but there are people that do charge that, um, Mm. but by charging too low because the client is going to perceive that, like, maybe you're not that great. Yeah, that's so true. And you're right. And it's also, like, I've learned as well, um, when I do a startup, if it's under a certain level, I take 100% of the payment up front. Oh, you do? Wow. I used to do 50-50, and I had so many startups that ghosted me at a certain point. Because I think, you know, I used to do initial designs and then, you know, a couple of rounds of reviews and then be ready to CAD. And that's when they'd ghost me. And I think what they were doing is just taking the reviewed, not having a full CAD pad, but taking the reviewed design and just going to the factory that with it. That was like enough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, maybe at that point they ran out of money yeah. and you, know, you never know. But yeah. so now I'm like, if you make them pay, they value. And also you'll find they'll get back to you quicker. Yeah, they feedback. have some investment in it. There's skin in the game. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it's worth considering all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I love that. And then I want to jump back. We're jumping around a little bit here, but I want to jump back just to kind of reiterate the LinkedIn stuff that you said. Um, I interviewed, and we'll link to this again in the show notes, but um, Hillary Glenn is another successful freelancer who really, really killed it on LinkedIn. And she did, it sounds like what's similar to you, like her profile on there was very niche and very specific in what she did. And she just came up in searches and people would contact her. I think almost all her work came through people just finding her there. Um, and she would also, you know, tag the brands that she had done work for. So there was a lot of the validation that you've already talked about. And they would just reach out and they're like, you're the person we need because she had profiled herself really to fit that market. Yeah, I mean, I think putting the time in and I'm still like, this is the thing I'm on here and I'm chatting to you guys, but I'm still learning so much. They get such a vast area to, to learn stuff. But I also feel like with all the social media stuff, sometimes it's better just to put some content out, even if you're not like a hundred percent sure. Like I was putting some stuff on Instagram earlier and I was like, Oh, how many hashtags do I put on this? Like how many is like a good amount of hashtags? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go with this and then I'll like tweak it and learn later. Like I literally, I think I have one Instagram post at this point guys, but it's coming, it's happening. Um, (laughs) And I feel the same with LinkedIn as well, because it's like each social media channel seems to have its own separate dialect and you need to work like you can be super cash in some and then others. It's more like professional. Um, so I think it's really learning that, you know, and, and other people have different perspectives, too. Like I read a girl boss and she was saying, you know, like we hire people on LinkedIn, but we want them to talk like they talk in real life, um, whereas other employers like you to be kind of like third person speech and stuff and I think it's just kind of working out where you are but that just takes time and and practice you know like doing it putting stuff out and you can always delete stuff like I you know if you put a blog post just delete it if you hate it um there's this great quote uh from the 
founder of Founder Magazine. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he says, if you're not, I think it's his quote, um, if you're not embarrassed of the first version of your product, you launched too late. And I think that there's so much truth in like, sometimes you just got to get something out the door, whether it's that Instagram post, right? That's the first version <laughs> of your product, or it's your portfolio website. Or like, for me, I look back, it's been a lot of things, because that's just where you start with everything. But like, one, the one I've always talked about is like, my first YouTube video is horrendous. It's so <laughs> bad. But it's like, at some point, you just get it, get started, get your feet yeah. wet. Like, I am still tripping over my own feet. Instagram. Like I have to be honest, mm -hmm. my Instagram is meh. I'm still trying to figure out like, do I post this? Do I not? Is this awkward? Is too personal? I don't know. Maybe it's too pushy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, whatever, I'm figuring it out. And like, I'm just doing something. And so I think you can't, you can over tweak it to the point that you never do anything. But like exactly. you said, and, like, just get started. And I'm a designer. I'm not an Instagram specialist. So it's like, <laughs> I haven't got the time to be spending like a hundred percent on Instagram. Like yeah. it's just to represent and to give people an idea and to hopefully flow them to the website to do work. And the other thing you, you know, I find really tricky or can be really tricky is when you're a freelance designer, you have to be so careful because it's not your product. Yeah. So there's two things to that, which is one, you know, timeline wise, it's so frustrating if you've done an amazing product and you can't share it straight away, you know, you have to work out that balance. I have had a factory recently share online, um, a design I did. I'm working with the client there. They're a startup in this area. And, uh, we had to, had to call them and be like, guys, you need to take that down because you know, you can't share this. This product hasn't launched it's for the client. in the market yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so that's like common it. knowledge, but well, yeah, you'd think. And then two, the other issue is you may not always like everything you design. Yes. <laughs> so true. I did, I did a whole collection of socks recently. Not that they weren't really super cool, attractive socks. They were. But I mean, socks, that's that's pretty random. They were sports yeah. socks, but they were socks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's kind of not everything will feed into your personal aesthetic necessarily. It depends how you work your freelance. I mean, I'm lucky because most of my clients come to me for a certain aesthetic. But at the end of the day, sometimes you take clients who are within your niche, but not necessarily within you know, they've, you're they've seen sick. a trend. Yeah. They <laughs> want to go with that trend. And you're like, you sure guys? Um, or even like one of the things you have to come to terms with too, is like, you can design the best product ever. It can literally be your favorite thing. And then by the time it hits the market, it's been so tweaked because, you know, the team wanted something or they couldn't get the fabric or the zipper had to change. And then it hits market. You're like, oh, it's not quite how I intended it. Yeah. So it's tricky freelance wise and what you can and can't put out on social. Yeah, but you figure it out. And like you said, yeah. you know, sometimes if you're living that lifestyle, which you're living the sportswear lifestyle, to, you know, you said not full time, which is fine. You're not wearing sportswear every day, <laughs> but like you're wearing it enough and you're doing activities that you can incorporate a lot of that stuff into your content, which I actually think is really valuable because sometimes they want to know you as a person. And that's <laughs> even more validating that like you do you're engaged in this which means you know the market that much better which means you can do that much better of a job for them yeah and I think as a freelancer that's what they're hiring they're hiring you and there's always that line between personal and professional but I think as a freelancer it blurs more than um as a normal employee which totally. I think has, has its benefits you know it's great you can have a voice 
um, and make a stand with the voice. Yeah, I love that. Um, Lily, so many amazing insights and tips, and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for sharing so, so much valuable information with everyone and your story and your journey. It's been really fun. It sounds like you've gone through so many different things. Um, I'd love to end with two last things. One is where can people find you and connect with you online or LinkedIn or where's the best place? So the easiest place is my website, which is the sportsweardesigner.com. And then all my socials will be running off of that soon. Um, But I'm also on LinkedIn. So I'm Lily Rice. Um, and yeah, I'm just trying to join everything. So, and everyone that's listening would be great because I need all the tips too. So throw those back (laughs) at me. (laughs) Yeah. It's a two way conversation here. Exactly. And it's, you know, especially when you've got startups or, I mean, amazing to hear from people who've been doing a long time, but when people are starting up, it's just fresh ideas are amazing. I love to hear it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. And then I would love to end the interview with the question we ask everybody at the end of the show. And that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in fashion that you wish they would? You know, I listened to your podcast, so I knew you were going to ask that and I still (laughs) don't have a good answer. Um, I think the things people always ask me are like, oh, do you work in your pajamas? (laughs) Um, Which I don't. I like, I'm really regimented and get up. Um, people don't ask me like, oh, what's the coolest like thing that you've done? Like, I don't know why. I'm like, my job's really cool. And no one ever asked me what's the coolest bit you've done. Like I recently designed um, for um, world champion boxer, Katie Taylor. And I want to be like, hey guys, I did this. And you can't brag about it. So I just bragged about it on your podcast. That's so cool. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you just answered the question because I was then going to come right back with what's the coolest thing. Um, But wow, world champion boxing. How Mm -hmm. fun. But people don't ask me that. They just want to know if I work in my pajamas. That's oh, perverse. That's kind of weird. Boring... It's perverse. <laughs> it's like a weird thing from people that work in an office who secretly want to work in their pajamas, I reckon. Well, I think it go. you know, there's this like stereotype picture of like what's the freelancer's lifestyle, right? And I think it, it can lean towards that. It's either that or uh, fashion runway, runway. I never get that right. Project you know, runway. like a yeah. mode with loads of fabric. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Right. And you're really... like, actually, it's neither of those things. Yeah, exactly. Actually, it's my uh, computer. Although I went to the opticians today and she's like, what's your occupation? I'm like, sportswear designer. She's like, do you wear uh, goggles for that? I was like, um, no, I'm at a computer. <laughs> I don't know what she thought I did. Oh, okay. Like goggles, like protective goggles, protective not like glasses. Goggles. I was oh, like, you guys no. call them goggles? I thought we could, you called them glasses. No. Um, I, oh my gosh, like protective goggles. <laughs> so that was new to me. That was a question I hadn't been asked yet. <laughs> That's a funny one. Do you wear goggles for that? No, I'm at my computer. Everything's pretty safe. Yeah, so far. I'll let you guys know if it changes. If things start flying in your eyes. Exactly. Cutthroat freelance world. Yeah. Protective goggles. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lily, and congrats on your career success and trajectory. It sounds like you're on an amazing path and it's really, really cool to hear everything that you're that you have accomplished and that you have going on. Amazing to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here and listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. A big shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all the tech and editing behind the scenes and makes the show possible, as well as my right-hand woman, Tara, who 
does so much that you guys don't see. She helps tremendously with the podcast. She makes sure they get published and out to you and into your ears on Mondays. Um, so a big shout out to her who handles a lot of the logistics and helps coordinates the scheduling of the guests. I really appreciate you and would not be here without you. So thank you so much for that. Um, as always, again, thank you to you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. We do love those five-star reviews on iTunes. So if we are worthy of that, if you love what you're hearing on this podcast, please take a second to give us a review and a shout on iTunes. It really does help the show grow. As always, a quick reminder that SFD is way more than just a podcast. To get access to my best free resources to get help you get ahead in the fashion industry, head on over to SoHeidi.com slash email, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email, or give me a follow on Instagram. I would love to connect with you there. You can find me at SoHeidi. As always, if you want to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you in the next episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast.